Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film Squawk. A Year in Review, 2020. Greetings from our homes to yours. Whether you're new to Crow Talk or a seasoned listener, you're joining us during a singular time in 21st century history. As you're critically aware, coronavirus has rerouted normal life, tipping everything expected on its head. This podcast is no exception. Instead of recording Season 3 episodes from our studio at Western Washington University, we will be podcasting from our couches and remote workstations. We will use headphones with tiny microphones as dogs bark outside and our partners quietly bring us tea. Just as the quality of our production must shift, so has the dynamic of film viewing. So, welcome to our Season 3 series, streaming in the time of COVID, where we will reflect on the experience of viewing share yays and nays, squawk our opinions, and consider takeaways, things we want to remember moving forward about this film or film in general. If this is your first time tuning in with us, welcome. We have had quite the crazy year streaming in the time of COVID. And to us, that means, of course, not getting to go to the theater to view all of the incredible films that ended up coming out in 2020. This last year, we have had the beautiful fortune to review 12 films. Emma, adapted and directed by Autumn DeWilde. Sella and the Spades, written and directed by Tyree Chapeau. The Half of It, written and directed by Alice Wu. Hamilton, directed by Thomas Kale. Twilight Rift Tracks, film originally directed by Catherine Hardwick. Commentary by Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett. Now and Then, directed by Leslie Linka-Gladder. The 40-Year-Old Version, written and directed by Rada Blank. Happiest Season, co-written and directed by Clea Duvall. Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, written and directed by Eliza Hittman. Promising Young Woman, written and directed by Emerald Fennell. Nomadland, directed and written for the screen by Chloe Zhao. St. Maud, written and directed by Rose Glass. Of the 12 2020 Crow Talk episodes, only one featured a male director, Thomas Kale, meaning that the majority of our films that we were able to review and discuss and revel over this year were helmed by women. So, without further ado, let's discuss our final 2020 yays and nays, kicking it off with, of course, our yays, things that we loved about this year, things that stood out about this specific time in film, or what just kind of tickled us as the year progressed uh, that we maybe didn't expect during such a mm, morose time for some. A yay for 2020 would be that big, mulierous energy. Ooh. My yay for 2020 was more voices in the spotlight, also meaning like discovering smaller filmmakers in more regional sized festivals. And for me, I really appreciated this new mode of access to film, the ability to engage with so many female-led productions that ended up being major hitters during award season, and just conversation starters throughout the world, really. Um, Whether you're online or you're talking with friends, a lot of the films we discussed this year uh, became a prime point in that conversation. But for me, the year started slow. Uh, And as we went back over the films in preparation for this podcast, it reminded me of how uncertain I was leading into our streaming in the time of COVID season three. Uh, And I thought that that was a really fun reminiscence to have, especially for how strong the year ended. And of course, podcasting from home certainly has its perks. 
It does. I could be in my pajamas right now and you would never know. In fact, I am in my pajamas. Spoiler alert. Right now. Hopefully that's the only spoiler this episode. All right. So how about Nace? Uh, Deterrence, detractors, difficulties from the 2020 filmic year. No movie theaters. Same exact name. No movie theaters. And I, I personally had a low drive to consume film. Normally fairly voracious when it comes to watching movies and this year I was less less apt to to go for the movie over a mini series or a book or some other activity and I think some of that is because we weren't collectively going to the theater and getting that that high off of the group experience and I really am curious to know uh with this missing out of the cinematic experience, how that might've changed our experience with some films. And you know, what's so great about this year in review podcast is the opportunity to discuss films that we miss talking about or films that struck us later or concepts that we didn't have fully fleshed out when we did get to, to chat about them. And so specifically, I'm wondering what it would have been like to see a few of these films in theaters. I'm going to say a couple names and you tell me if you saw them and or if you think that your experience would have been different with one or two of them and why. So I'm thinking like St. Maud, Sound of Metal, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, Mank, Wonder Woman 1984, Tenant. I'm thinking of ending things and then we danced. I hardly saw any of those, Rochelle. So let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> did you see one yeah i saw one you saw more than one i saw you more did. than one sound of metal would have been great in the theater just because of the sound that was such a sensory experience so that would have been really really wonderful to see i did love it on the couch though because it was like i don't know why i feel like it was an underdog in the like best film running category mm-hmm. for the academy awards and I guess it's because I just didn't see as much advertised for it. Right. Like I, it was not on my radar until it was on the best films list. And I was like, oh, all right, check this out. So I did kind of like that viewing experience where that film, I think, is was good enough for me where I wasn't distracted at home. Where like with St. Maude, for example, I was like very distractible, which I am oftentimes. I think I've said that throughout this season a lot, too. I could get up and like start washing a dish or like, I have no idea. I'm like in my bedroom. Suddenly, I don't know how I got there. (laughs) Blackout. The movie is playing. (laughs) So Sound of Metal for me was like a beautiful little like couch nugget surprise where I was just like, what is this amazing film? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons for every single movie. Like St. Maud would have been, I don't know, I probably would have been like so bored in a theater for St. Maud. I would have wanted to be like standing in my bedroom suddenly. Just with a dish, just like washing a dish in my bedroom. A collection of how you got there. (laughs) I don't know. I think the theater does help sometimes because it's literally larger than life and really consuming and so overstimulating sometimes that I wonder how much that affects our viewing. I mean, it has to, it does affect our viewing. So I would have been interested or would be interested to go back in time and Mm -hmm. rewatch St. Maude for the first time in the theater and see if I had a different experience. Wonder Woman seems like it would have done a lot better in theaters too, because it did terribly, right? I didn't watch that one either. I'm just like throwing it out there, but like it's big, 
Right. Action. No, it would have been terrible. Never mind. It still would have tanked, I think. It's the worst. Because it was so... Didn't see it. Bad. I may have appreciated the visuals more. Like with Tenant, like that's big as well. And it just had so many issues story-wise. Concept was so fumbling. But it was big and conceptually made for a large screen. Like Mank. Like this sweeping epic and like hyper black and white like that's why I'm wondering like how those would have felt because I'm not saying I didn't like them. I mean, Wonder Woman 1984 was rough. Uh, would Mank different- have released as a Netflix film? Would it have released in the theaters? I believe it would have released in the theaters. I want to Google that. Netflix. Like Roma? Like, yeah. Like even Roma had a small theatrical release. Oh, it like, did. And like with movies that are releasing on HBO, they're doing that simultaneous release where you can watch it on HBO. So there's the access at home or you can watch it in the theater. So maybe it would have been like that. Maybe it would have been simultaneous. Okay. Uh, but I, I don't know. It's like The Trial of the Chicago 7. I know that would have gotten a theatrical release. And the editing in that film was so intriguing. I do wonder how I would have felt um, experiencing that on the big screen. Uh, if it would have felt a seamless larger. It's more fun on big screens too. Because it's like it, there's like more satisfaction in like checking the films off your list. I feel like mm-hmm. too. Like I find... Kind of like you, Rochelle, I didn't have like I did have films on my radar that we had seen trailers for early, early 2020. But it's not the same when you go and see trailers before a film and you get hyped up that way. And then the Oscars are coming and then the theaters like bring in all of the Oscar films again. You know, it's not that same like aggressive, excited, like gobbling of all of the films preparing for award season type of energy like Obviously, I didn't even watch the Oscars. <laughs> it's a big it's a big difference. This year is just full of of shifts. And I think that considering how our viewing experience is different helps shoot us off into the other areas that were quite different and impacting. I think that in a very small way, even the emotional aspects of film are different at home. I'm thinking of dancing, the beautiful sweeping dance uh, scenes in films like we saw. And I'm thinking of ending things. And then we danced uh, are so different uh, on the small screen. We think a lot of like action films and big budget film when we think of the large screen, but also space, taking up space. We've all become so accustomed to so little space. Uh, I think that... The expansiveness is also something I've missed. Sitting in the theater alone and watching the movie is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Uh, so maybe it's not so much being around others as it is that space that we have uh, gotten used to not having. But we still all managed to see quite a bit of film this year. And we've had a lot of exciting conversation about film. I think all of us are very pleased with the films we've been able to see and discuss together. It far exceeded my expectations for the year, our Crow Talk season. How how has that fallen for both of you? Same, especially the last half. It really just ramped up and got really good. Just one after the other. They were films that I think we were all just so excited to dig into. And had been anticipating too, where I feel like at the beginning of the season, yeah, we were kind of reaching and scrambling like everybody else. Like, oh, shit. What are we going to review? Absolutely. And still we managed to find so many films available on platforms like Hulu or Netflix or Prime 
that were written and directed by women and were solid productions that brought something new or different to us each time uh, and allowed us to to dive into our own experience with film and representation in film. And that's been exciting. I know that all of those films are made up of smaller moments. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about some of your favorites from this last year. They could be podcasted films from Crow Talk. They can be non-podcasted films. They can be anything um, film related. But what about your favorite opening scene? Opening scene of a film this year. And then give us a little tidbit about it in case our listeners haven't seen that film yet. I got this question wrong. Stacy and I were discussing it this morning because I didn't check. I didn't go back and watch the beginning. And it was a scene that was so impactful on me. I like was really cocky about it. It was like, yeah, that's definitely the opening <laughs> scene. I put Emma. And mine is actually the opening scene for Mr. Knightley, Ooh. which isn't technically the right. opening scene of the film. Mm-hmm. But it's such a good opening scene. It basically feels like it is. <laughs> The butt scene? <laughs> yeah. The cupping scene. The cupping butt scene. <laughs> if you know what I mean. That's an enticing I don't want to give a spoiler <laughs> there. What could be cupped? I wonder. Oh. My favorite opening scene was for Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It starts with a dark theater. Young children, oh. middle grade, come out in poodle skirts. Lights come up. And they do a bad dance. <laughs> and then there's an Elvis Presley impersonation and a few other acts at this talent show. And then you get to Autumn, the character Autumn, who is singing a song, singing her heart out on her guitar. And it's it's just a terrific opener. Oh, you know, yeah. the opening oh, yeah. of a talent show. It's oh. just perfect. Yeah. And that song gets under your skin. I'm singing it in my head right now. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. And it fits the film. It sets everything up. It tells you everything, everything you need to know. Right everything. There. It's brilliant. Even though you don't know it yet, but it, you can, yeah. like, hindsight, right? Totally. Ugh. Yeah, for me, I did end up getting a surge right before the Oscars and, you know, crammed in a significant amount of film. And my, lazy, my laziness was sloughed off and I crammed in film. And one of the films that I watched uh, was Pieces of a Woman which starred Vanessa Kirby. And we've talked about it a little bit this season about how unfair uh, this entire circumstance with Shia LaBeouf and his abusive, the reality of his abusive nature coming forward, uh, being made public, and then the outcome and the the aftermath and how Vanessa Kirby uh, may have been negatively impacted by that. And this film may have been negatively impacted by that. But thankfully she was nominated uh, for leading actress for the Oscars. And so I really wanted to see what that was all about. And so the first scene, which is really just like act one of Pieces of a Woman. It's so intense. It's so intense. So and intense. I say it's the opening scene because 30 minutes in after that entire scene is done, the title hits. Oh. So it really is like scene one and it's every it's the entire reason I believe that she was nominated uh, is for this scene this it's this birthing scene and it takes 30 minutes and it is it's remarkable harrowing uh, and everyone does a great job uh, you know we've never been like poo-poo on LaBeouf for his acting it's just poo-poo for your personhood so yeah that was my favorite and it was so late to the game and I had a great 
a great surprise there and was excited to know a little bit more about why she was nominated and and to feel like I was championing her as well. I think from the get-go with that film, she was praised like out the gate for it because it is just gut-wrenching and she like gets you immediately. There are other technical moments in film uh, and film moments from the year that stand out to each of us, I'm sure. And so beyond opening scenes, some of those moments for me include the questionnaire scene in Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, so profound. Um, when Ruben finds his silent kingdom of God in the closing scene of Sound of Metal, really personally identified with that in a bizarre way that I never saw coming. So that felt really intimate. Uh, what an achievement there. Uh, the funeral scene in Kirsten Johnson's Dick Johnson is Dead documentary where she captures all these different ways her father, who is actually navigating senility and Alzheimer's, how they're imagining he'll die and they're making this joke out of it. It is a very clever, clever documentary. But the funeral scene in that and then at the very end of The Father, you're left to just watch leafy trees and listen to them blow in the wind. And you're just left there to contemplate yourself in your life. And oh, that's a soul punch right there. Yeah, The Father was one I put down, but more just for the editing as a whole. It reminded me of uh, Temple Grandin, who is a woman. She has autism because the way in which it was cast, edited, yeah, the like technical components of that film did a good job in trying to depict dementia I felt and and the experience of the person going through dementia it's like we've heard a lot of stories from the family and then Nomadland too for the craft of it just the documentary narrative which apparently yeah everyone's on board with like being obsessed with Nomadland and <laughs> Chloe Zhao and her craft so. Autumn and never rarely sometimes always Autumn in the doctor's office is probably a scene that will just stay with me forever. And it was the first one I thought of when reflecting on some of my favorite moments. A moment I loved in Minari was when little David brings in a blade of grass because <laughs> the stick broke for his spanking and his grandmother tells him what a good boy he is. <laughs> it's just like, I just... Like, I don't know, made some sort of sound between like joy and love and like crying. I was like, this is so sweet. <laughs> that whole film is just so sweet. And it's like w watching like a perfect like day end at dusk is how that whole film feels like in a field. You can like smell it when you watch it. Mm, so definitely that one would have been really amazing in the theater, huh? Yeah, I watched that one on my iPad through like the oh. A24. It was like before it was out to rent on like Amazon yeah. or anything. So A24 did a like portal rental. I rented it through the Pickford, but then it navigated me, which is our local art house theater. But it navigated me to A24 and they like sold out too the tickets, these like virtual tickets. So I watched it on a screen that was like maybe 12 inches I still have it listed down as my favorite cinematography. <laughs> also, funny to know. I was I was surprised when the cinematographer for Mank won. Though I was excited that it was his first film. That feels like such an achievement and congratulations to him. But with films like Minari and Joshua James Richards' work on Nomadland, I was <laughs> I was surprised. 
I was surprised too. I thought it stood out amongst the other nominees as the clear winner. But, you know, there's the Oscars for you. <laughs> there were many moments in the Pixar animated film Onward that hit for me because the story is something that I've experienced. So I won't do any spoilers, but there is a pretty powerful moment at the end that anyone who's experienced uh, loss of a loved one, like a really close loved one, will get something out of out of onward. So that's super vague, spoiler friendly. <laughs> but that movie was full. That one made it onto my top ten list because it just really understood what navigating death as a child feels like. Speaking of loss and things that surprised us this year, I was really surprised by how much I loved The Father, the film The Father. Uh, that was probably my biggest surprise of the year. I watched it late. It was in that last minute grab <laughs> that I had just a few days before uh, before the Oscars. And I'm glad that I did watch it because it kind of reinvigorated my my hope or belief that stage productions can be adapted for film. I've got this love, this idea of, of cinematic theater performances. Uh, obviously, the theater stage performances are so different than film performances, but this was an incredible adaption in that it didn't seem like a stage play at all. But once I learned that it was, it made complete, perfect sense and made me hungry to get to see it, to see it on the stage. Uh, the The set design in in The Father was beyond words. Uh, not to mention Anthony Hopkins' performance. But yeah, that was my biggest personal surprise of enjoyment for a film this year. My list, my top ten list, had been pretty much locked, and then that little number came in, <laughs> messed up the whole system. Mm-hmm. My surprise for the year was definitely Borat subsequent <laughs> movie film. I was so surprised how much I loved it because I obviously like Borat is a part of high school time, I think. Yeah. Is when it came out. So, you know, it's in there, but this was so good. The sequel is so much better than the first one because of his daughter. <laughs> and really yeah, it ends up being about father daughter love. It's so good not to mention very funny (laughs) very funny like perfect moment in political time too I feel like to kind of just like lighten the mood though I'm sure it really pissed some people off but it lightened my mood and that was amazing (laughs) oh god McDonald Trump my surprise was sound of metal which I've already like said like no one's surprised by my surprise well and I hadn't seen sound of metal uh yet it was a part of the (laughs) The final grab as well. And Cassidy, you really recommended it. And I was blown away by Riz's performance uh, and just the the entire film. Uh, Paul Racy as Joe uh, was one of my favorite performances of the year. And I was really thankful to see him nominated. Specifically, Joe asking Ruben to leave the house. That scene. Yeah, just so incredible. My partner... Let me know that the director specifically told Paul not to act, to just be himself. Yeah, Riz Ahmed and and Paul Racy were incredible. And I feel like 
Paul Racy taught me things about life. It makes sense. I didn't realize he had two deaf parents. Watching him sign through the entire Oscars and the accessibility just it literally made my Oscar experience. Uh, there are d- multiple tables with uh, an interpreter signing, people signed parts of the announcements or like the awards. It was just perfect. It was exactly, I wanted it so much. I didn't even know I did. And it was beautiful. But yeah, I feel like that film is like something that you'll put in your back pocket and carry with you on your journey. Like it teaches you things about being human and the journey of life that Yeah, I was just not expecting it. I was just like, Sound of Metal, what's this all about? No idea. I watched the trailer and then was like, okay, let's do this. And it was just, yeah, it just was so surprising how much I loved it. And my other favorite performance that I wrote down was Maria Bakalova from Borat. From Borat. Subsequent movie film. Because I can't imagine, like, being left in those situations and not even, like, crack in one tiny smile like she the woman never never broke <laughs> jaw dropping nothing else to say whoa she, she's just so funny she is funnier than Sasha Baron Cohen well and to just like come up against Sasha Baron Cohen and like meet him as his equal but also yeah I feel like she had more of a challenge because this wasn't like her shtick she like stepped into his world and then performed the shit out of it I wonder if films like that have a traditional script I think they're very much like Christopher Guest films where he has the story and maybe the scenes where they were together were scripted but I know you know when he goes out the people don't know what's going on they're just reacting and that's the whole purpose is to get them to react normally to these very not okay things that he's saying and asking them to do. But that's a good question with this new element. I always thought about how it was cast. Like, how did they hold auditions for this actress? And like, did they do like test, like focus groups where they like took her out? I mean, I bet they did. And they're like, okay, here's this like random group of unsuspecting people. Let's go. Let's see how this plays out. So interesting. Well, and you know, we're talking about strong performances and so often you hear film theorists and teachers say that a strong performance requires in most cases a strong screenplay and in this case you have you know something more off the cuff and and of course we've seen that before but it makes me you know think about like my favorite part of the year this year I couldn't find screenplays anywhere um I would look mm. and they just weren't posted And so, and I was also thinking about trying to pick a favorite, you know, as categories come up and they're nominated and everything like that throughout the last few months. I'm like, well, how, how do you really choose? Because when you have such a strong year, it's like a book. You like, do I get a favorite in every genre? Yes, please. (laughs) Cause that's what I wanted because Sound of Metal was so strong. And I think we got a lot of that because it was a very tight script. That's what it seemed. I didn't read it. I would love to, but same with Promising Young Woman. I think that that having those act breakdowns was extremely specific and intentional. But The Father was an adaptation, as was Nomadland, and you see completely different utilizations of the word adaptation when you think The Father from the stage to the screen and Nomadland from human beings to fiction. It's just stunning. And how do you choose? I can't choose. I have three that I hold and juggle around. 
But I don't even want to like say which ones they are because once I do, I'm going to be like, no, <laughs> this other one. Take it back. <laughs> you can have take backsies as long take as you share backsies. the three. <laughs> Endless takes. I didn't realize we had to have a top three. Uh, oh, did no, we? No, 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 I just no. do. Okay, because I'm looking no. at my 10 and I'm like. I just couldn't choose. <laughs> I can't really choose. For me, it's Promising Young Woman, Minari, just for like the beauty. It was just like so yummy. And then Nomadland, not necess- it was for the craft of Nomadland, not necessarily for like the watchability of Nomadland. Or, yeah, it was the craft purely. I'm always so resistant to making these ranked lists because they're all on an equal platform for me if they're up that high, you know? And they are also different. And like you said, Rochelle, you have films that are so extraordinary and one has a tight script that's gone through so many different iterations and mediums. And then you have like The Father and then you have Nomadland, which is the exact opposite. And they're both extraordinary. So, so hard to put one over the other. And then you but... have Holiday. Never forget Holiday of 2020. <laughs> and then you have Legitimately almost put Holiday. it on my list because I watched it so many times. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of Happiest Season. I was like, what's Holiday? I forgot. That's it's the like, Emma Roberts. It's, yeah, it's even more like, it's not like it's a even, B movie, but like, yeah. It's a holiday movie. It's a holiday. holiday it's called movie. Holiday. So they do have you their own genre and they're and we love amazing. <laughs> well, and so often my favorite screenplay or the screenplays I'm really attracted to don't always coincide with my favorite films for the year. My favorite film this year was And Then We Danced. It's a Georgian film. And it's gorgeous about Gregorian dance and a Gregorian dance troupe uh, and young love and coming of age. And it's beautiful and wasn't a selection for uh, the international film section this year. But another round, which is another top film for me, was and then it won. Uh, So we, we don't get as much exposure sometimes to international films. Uh, And since they're not in English, I, I very rarely read those screenplays. That is my blind spot this year, is foreign film. I like, did mm. not do a good job screening foreign films. I feel like I go through seasons with foreign films more, where I'll like seek them out and become like obsessed with gobbling them and then like take a break for a while. Yeah, I don't know what happened this year, but I didn't. And we didn't review any foreign films. No, I would agree that that's a blind spot for me as well. But just as a general note for my whole entire viewing life, it's been a blind spot. Um, I was watching And Then We Danced last night um, to also sneak it in before this podcast and enjoying it so much and just in love with the whole thing. And I was fantasizing about taking one country and watching cinema from that country each month not going to happen for being really realistic and truthful but I do want to open myself up more to that because it's just there's so much out there well and that film dug so far into the culture of which I'm not familiar and so I felt like I was learning with every scene even every emotional interact interaction I was learning about what is appropriate and what is deemed not appropriate and how how overcoming looks, you know, there as opposed Mm -hmm. to the United States. And so I love that. I think I have four international films on my top 10 list this year, but a lot of that is, it goes back to my partner who watches tons of international films. So 
I always have a lot of access in that capacity. And it's taken me actually quite a long time to uh, reach for foreign language films. Uh, And I'm so thankful that I'm getting over that as I get older and as I learn more about film because it it is an education every single time uh, you turn on a film that isn't about you. (laughs) But in the very base humanity sense, it is very relatable in that way. So yay us for seeing so much film, uh, but there have definitely been films I've missed this year. Like I said, I was kind of dragging my feet uh, for a lot of the year on watching film. I don't, I still don't know why, but I still want to see films like Emma, which is a foreign language film, and Kajillionaire, Miranda July's Kajillionaire, which I missed. It came out. I missed it. Can't find it anywhere. And both of those would have been really exciting films to discuss. Uh, Did you have any specific blind spots that you're thinking back like, oh, man, I wish I would have watched that? Yeah, another round. Like, I had no idea. That goes back to what we said earlier about, like, not being able to see trailers, too. And so, you know, like how you could in a theater and they're just like not I don't want to say forced on you because it's like a magical experience that I love but like you know you're force fed them so I missed another round and then swallow have you both seen swallow I have no okay yeah I'm intrigued just by the like the look of it and the storyline and I believe it's written and directed by a woman too I like completely missed it I think it's still out there on is it on Hulu it's, I think it's on a platform that's... Yeah, it is on Hulu. You're right. I, I enjoyed it. It was it was clever and really quite delicious for the eyes. And the character arc is empowering. I really liked uh, the performance, the main performance in that film. Yeah, I was just like hooked by the trailer. And then I do want to see And Then We Danced after listening to the two of you. Just, Rochelle, you've brought it up multiple times over the last few months, like since whenever you had screened it. But yeah, Stacey just watched it last night. So she was (laughs) filling me in and it is on my list. (laughs) Uh, Swallow is also on my list. I remember that trailer from so long ago. Again, all of these films, you know, were filmed so long ago. Um, so we were expecting them. So long ago. So long ago. <laughs> um, but that was on my list. I'm really bummed I missed time. Maybe that's my mm. biggest one. Mm-hmm. My biggest blind spot that I would like to correct. And then um, I really wanted to see First Cow. That's how I feel about First Cow too. Because that was in the slew of the A24, like really good, delicious trailers we got to watch. And mm-hmm. Man, but that was like a completely different world too. Like, yeah, I feel like the whole like film gobbly energy got completely just like flattened by just like everything else by the pandemic. Just the amount of energy we had after watching those trailer selections compared to like two months down the line. It's just like different universe. Yeah, and First Cow had originally been on our our schedule for this year. It was actually one of the first films that like came to streaming too. Like I remember when it released and was like, ugh. (laughs) We had something else slated because of like the timeline and then it was just too close. And so we're like, never mind. (laughs) We'll just go with what we have. (laughs) It was very dramatic. Drama. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and Time is one of the films I listed as a Crow Talk blind spot directed by Garrett Bradley, a female documentarian who really gets in the face of real life issues and portraying them via film. Sounds like all documentary, but this is a little bit more like in the moment. It's worth checking out. 
I think that we would have had a lot of, man, compelling conversation Mm -hmm. around that film and just around how it was told and even just how we walked away from the film itself. Put it on the list. You know, that that along with Shirley, it was another one Mm -hmm. of those films I caught really late just a few days ago, directed by Josephine Decker. That's been on Hulu forever. And I enjoyed that movie. I'm biased. It's a movie about a writer. Hmm. I've heard Hmm. great things. We've had had that movie recommended. I started it and didn't finish it. But I think that is just like the washing the dish problem. Did Shirley get a nod for anything? Was it nominated for anything? No. Not that I know of. Okay. I just saw it on a list somewhere. I put down The World to Come as one of the blind spots for Crow Talk. Do any of you know that film or are familiar with that film? Mm-mm. It's frontier America. So it's set in like late 1800s. And it's these two women who suddenly you know. have the hots for each other. I, yeah, I haven't oh, seen it yet. It's it's with the actress, Rochelle, that you were talking about. Vanessa Kirby is in it. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. It, it looked intriguing to me. Someone had described it as having this epistolary feeling Ooh. because of the voiceover. At times, you almost feel like the woman is just writing to herself in some ways. And so mm-hmm. I was just like, I'm already in. Shut up. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, I think that could have been a fun one to Oh, my about. gosh. Just looking at like the Google search for one second, it looks like everything, Stacy. <laughs> everything that I that am you and want in a movie and, and that you yes. are as a human being. I know. <laughs> I know. Any films you wish we would have reviewed, Cass? Like, I wish Zola would have come out so we could review that. I'm like having a struggle not being able to squawk about Zola. Yeah, because there are, I haven't found a ton of films that have secured 2021 release dates to like anticipate. A lot of films lost their release dates. Uh, and so I was trying to think of what I'm excited for next. And Ridley Scott's House of Gucci with Lady Gaga and Adam Driver, mm. Al Pacino. That sounds cool. And it's coming out in 2021. And Zola... But so many others don't have a date anymore. And so I don't want to get emotionally attached. <laughs> There's one with Alana Glazer that's coming out too that I believe she co-wrote and stars in. It's under A24 too. Yeah, I guess I'm just like too much of a fangirl of like A24 and how they curate. But it's called False Positive And it's set to release June 25th of this year, directed by John Lee, written by John Lee and Alana Glazer, starring Alana Glazer, Justin Thoreau, Pierce Brosnan, and Sophia Bush. Uh, Zola, which is set for June 30th. And then there's another one called Pleasure that's directed by a woman named Ninja Thyberg, and it's called Pleasure, but that one just still says coming soon. So it might be a 2022 release, but everybody go to A24, go to Neon Films, go to Focus Features. That is still fun. That still does bring me like almost trailer joy. I'm also excited for Zola and House of Gucci. I remember when the stills came out for that. And the internet like broke. <laughs> yeah, because Adam Driver just like broke oh, the internet. their ski outfits, everyone was just like. <laughs> oh, barf. Barf. Barf in my mouth. <laughs> And then there's a film called Don't Worry, Darling, Olivia Wilde's project that she's been working on for... With Harry Styles and Florence with Harry Styles and Florence Pugh, yes. So I remember reading about that after Booksmart because I was excited to see what she was doing next. It doesn't have a firm date, but it does say 2021. So I'm looking forward to that one if it actually comes out in 2021. Who knows how far they got in that production? I almost think that they 
didn't finish it. I don't know because her and Harry Styles are like hand holding and stuff. Like they're spending time together still. So who? Olivia. Olivia Wilde, Wilde and Harry, and Harry Styles. Styles. Stacy, where oh, have yeah. you been? This is you were like months together? behind. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Get. And isn't he like a little bit younger? He's Ooh. quite a bit younger. Yeah. <gasps> I just like made the connection that he's from One Direction, like oh, in the last couple of months. <laughs> that's the connection I make every time I look at him. I'm like, One Direction, huh? Say oh One Direction. Huh? Oh my gosh, I'm floored. Well, you've just got to get on the hot You're gossip. Holding hands? Yeah, they like hold hands. Aww. I love holding so hands. Sweet. I love so holding cute. hands. That's a really good one, Stace. Good call. It's so fun listening to the things you're excited for because so much of it's rooted in like nostalgia and hindsight and pulls back in other podcasts and other conversations we've had that I actually wanted to reflect on. And so I want to just throw out some things that happened over the last three years because, yes, we've been hosting this podcast now for three years and a lot of these really exciting details that keep coming back around have an origin story in Crotox. So specifically our first podcast ever, which was Molly's Game, Sorkin 2017, rough, but it invigorated a love for ski ballet that will become a project for us one day. And I love how you're just talking about (laughs) ski suits. And it just makes me think about how we were watching that film. We got to learn all about Cassie's experience on the slopes in her childhood. I was 11 and 12. (laughs) And (laughs) how it birthed this this passion for a ski ballet project one day. Uh, But of course, Molly's Game also reminded us to take a longer look at the influential men in Hollywood. What a great way to start Crow Talk. Justin Uh, Timberlake, we're looking at you. (laughs) Seriously, I mean... (laughs) Exact name in my head when I'm saying that. Uh, And then you were talking specifically about Booksmart and Olivia Wilde. And I was finding a parallel between what Booksmart did for comedy and showcasing women as the comedic lead and how Promising Young Woman does the same thing for the feminist rage fantasy (laughs) story or genre. It's like creating a new voice and taking back the power Uh, But both were more straightforward and accessible and both received tons, tons of shame and poor commentary. I've been reading the last few days uh, people's reactions about uh, Promising Young Woman as a film in in general and then also the awards that it won over the course of the award season and people have just so much to say. It's extremely divisive. And I remember Booksmart being divisive too. I can give an example. One star review for Promising Young Woman. I'm of the opinion that this is an irresponsible movie. It doesn't really matter to me if I think it's well made or piss poor because in the end, it just stings with that carelessness. For months, I've been weighing it on my tongue and mulling it over. And I realized that it only tastes worse every day. And upon rewatch, I discovered that I can't even accept it as a study of grief or self-sabotage in the wake of loss, when the ending is just too much to stomach, a glitzy mess too obsessed with drilling the point home that it completely collapses in on itself. Okay, so another letterbox review, but five stars this time. I have rewatched. I have recried. Despite its chick flick sugar-coated aesthetics with rom-com tropes, this film is subtler than you think. The invisibility of violence is well orchestrated. 
The film reflects the truths and people are mad at it just because it's too cruel. Promising Young Woman is another manifesto directly, but professionally announcing pain and sorrow with tears and internal screams, yet many are angry at the movie, saying what we should have publicly said louder all along. And I just am so compelled by the divergent conversation that this film and Booksmart, when it came out, though there were a lot more men weighing in on Booksmart, uh, and how I'm hoping that we get more films like this in 2022, uh, 2021 and 2022. These divisive entry point films that allow new voices or new perceptions to emerge. People finally starting to recognize their culpability in rape culture. People finally coming to terms with the access point of humor of women for women on film on screen and how it it carries the exact same weight as men. It just needs a nostalgic base. I wish I weren't surprised by those reviews. It makes me think of conversations that I've had with people about inherent racism. Mm. And it's this knee-jerk denial that they have any part of that or that is maybe even true, at least for them. And so that is coming up for me in hearing those reviews is that these people are just out of touch with the truth. They're mad that this is true, you know? Or they're mad that the truth is dressed up in a certain way. Oh, what a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) When it's obviously affecting these people to like, (laughs) not only give it a one-star review, but then like rewatch it again. It's like, ooh, oopsie, something got to you, didn't it? Something bothering you? I don't know. That's how I take it. It's just like, whoa, you were extremely affected by this film. It did its job. Good day. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's delicious. It's so exciting when film creates massive rise. So polarizing because I think a lot of who we are comes out in that and a lot of our issues come out as well. And we have to grapple with that that there are many ways to tell a story. And when you're telling a story that hasn't been told, there's going to be a lot of opinions about how it should be told, especially when it's personal story. Uh, like this. A lot of people need to weigh in because a lot of people have an emotional tie to to abuse. Totally. It, it, it's things that haven't been told and then haven't been told in that way. I think there's two things going on there. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly been a theme for this year for me, I think. Thinking of Cell in the Spades, um, that was kind of groundbreaking in some ways as far as the formula for a teenage, not rom-com, But that sort of young adult film, so many molds were broken this year, which is, yeah, disturbing because a lot of these films made it into the mass media. So it is very exciting. I'm personally excited for how far it feels like streaming film has come in such a short amount of time. At the beginning of our 2019 season, season two, we opened the season with Bird Box as a Netflix original film. And I'm thinking about all of the streaming films we watched this year, whether they are original films or not, and how in a roundabout way, I almost feel like forcing art to continue in a new format will only raise the bar for quality, for access, for representation, Because people are in their homes, they're not removed. So they're bringing more of themselves to it. And everybody is. 
And so with more people watching, I'm hoping that that creates accountability. And I, I am think I feel like this last year we saw a step up in even original films for streaming services like Prime or Hulu or Netflix, uh, a step above uh, the bird box fair that we had just two years ago. That's a good point. I think when there's something to push against, Ark, it's very interesting. And we've had such an obstruction, such a monumental weight to push against that we have seen things that maybe we wouldn't have seen without this this debilitating <laughs> world that we're forced to still move through. Yeah. And that brings me back to one of my yays for the whole year, which is, you know, the opportunity to see film. Not just opportunity, but like dedication to film too. I think there was a lot of that where people were screening film and trying to f- find film in festivals and support that way just out of like respect for the industry. Because one of my films, my favorite films of the year was Miss Juneteenth, which I saw, I believe it is streaming somewhere now. I didn't look before the podcast, but I had seen it in, I'm not even sure which film festival I screened Miss Juneteenth through. It was like a regional size festival somewhere, Uh, but it was just a delightful film. Uh, That's won quite a few awards, again, like on the regional level, but a delightful film that I would have not watched if it weren't for COVID and just kind of that camaraderie and support coming into the film community on a larger scale, you know, and like in the art house community too, I think. Uh, And Drought was another film that made it on my list for, uh, which is a a small film made out of South Carolina uh, that has also done pretty well regionally in film festival circuits. So just, yeah, I think that's really refreshing and, and watching stories told by people, even on a smaller scale, it like makes me think of TikTok. And then just like being real, sitting in your living room, stripped down with you don't need costumes and sets. And, you know, it's like funny and entertaining just on its own. And I feel like in 2020, we saw more of that. And, and you know, I think big studios and distributors are looking at that now and analyzing it and wanting to lift up all different types of perspectives and voices and storytelling from still, of course, like the big budget. Like, I hope that never goes away because it's so fun. But then, yeah, more accessibility through Netflix and, and Amazon. And I mean, and yeah, their ca- the caliber of their films is wild. How much better all of this, even Hulu, like all of them have just really put out some incredible films in the last, wow. I can't believe that was only three years ago, Rochelle, because it seems like it was longer that we did bird box. That was, or was that two years? Two. It was two. It was, yes. It was yeah, our first, kooky. our first episode for season two in 2019. And that does, it feels like so long ago. Yeah, and like the caliber of films mm-hmm. that are coming out of of the streaming platforms, which excites me, but I'm also like kind of skeptical about the rest of this year because it's like nobody's been filming. And that's why one of my big dreams for, for the end of this year going into 2022, that's insane to say, P.S., is that they will continue the online streaming platform for festivals. So gals like us can gain access to film that we're very hungry to see but have no hope of of gaining access to and now we've been a bit spoiled uh in a way i know that's that's also kind of crazy to think about but that would be a dream for me is that they would incorporate a digital streaming option for small and large festivals to not only encourage ticket sales and grow their festivals 
because we'll show up <laughs> digitally. Uh, but to increase the exposure of film consumption so that we keep so many eyes on film uh, that continue to demand more of the medium. I don't think that they can go back. I think that studios will have to move forward in a hybrid way. I think we will. Once we get through, we're going to go back to where we were and we'll have this additional way of viewing that will have been completely ironed out and used by groups that had no access to these films, even without COVID. So I think it's, I I would second that dream that we get to take these things that were a coping mechanism for COVID that have become this gift for everyone. Everyone wins. Films get more viewership. Groups of people that can't make it to the theater get to go see it. It's just a win-win overall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think another dream for me, which we sort of talked about earlier is continuing to see how the boundaries will be pushed in film because they certainly have been not just pushed, but obliterated and promising young woman is, is a perfect example of that destruction. So I'm excited to see what that has done to the landscape and how that's affecting writers right now and what that's going to inspire in this changing landscape. That is a dream that I have that that is going to continue and not backslide. Yeah, and just allow for more representation because more filmmakers will have a chance to get their film out there and seen, you know, because I do feel like that's a lot of it. Like filmmakers this year had a chance to get their film out there in ways that wouldn't have necessarily been there if it weren't for just all the social justice issues that have gone on, plus COVID, you know, just like all the things in life, which is so refreshing and educational. It's like what you said, Rochelle, when you watch foreign film, like you're learning something and even film that's not foreign when it's not your experience or things that you've necessarily considered, like you're learning and you're empathizing and learning about, yeah, just the human experience from someone else's perspective, which is like the most delicious, exciting way to dig into film for me, at least as if I am like, learning something different. More learning in 2021 and beyond. And beyond. And beyond. And we are in a precarious place with the decrease in production. There will be a, de a decrease in film that is able to be completed, film that will get the distribution it needs based on the contracts that have already been signed, etc. So we'll see what comes next. I'm excited to have a few films uh, to experience. And I'm sure that once the end of the year gets closer, we'll, we'll see potentially a deluge of a film's release. We just have no idea what those films are going to be yet uh, or what that environment will look like. And Hopefully so, some good Christmas movies from Netflix towards the end of the year. That's really all I want. I just want that. And then I want to start fresh in 2022 and go, you know? Oh, that sounds so good. Like I haven't been ready again for winter at all until this moment right now. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Here's another holiday no. plug. Holiday. Go watch it. No. <laughs> Michelle's like oh trying gosh. to sign off in like a profound way. Like <laughs> holiday. I no, I'm into the holiday films. I agree. Like, let's look forward to that. Hey, <laughs> We're setting the I bar. <laughs> you painted such a beautiful picture. So I like had to like. <laughs> okay, well, another season, season three. Oh my gosh, so fun! I love so doing beautiful. this with you, gals. Yeah, I love thank it so you. much. I do too. And thank you to all of you who listen, whether you're tuning in through KMRE or through wherever you get your podcasts or our website, talkingtocrows.com. 
We are so excited uh, that you came along for this ride. We have season one and season two out there for you to check out if if you're looking for more uh, podcasts from us over the next couple months. But we will see you again in the new year, 2022. Please keep your ears and eyes peeled for two exciting podcasts coming from Talking to Crows on the horizon. We will be sure to let you know more details soon. And until then, enjoy your summer. We're so thankful for you and keep watching Film at Home. This has been a quarantine-style Talking to Crows production. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, and honor us with that five-star rating. <laughs> ah, bye! <laughs> bye! <laughs> 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 <laughs>